Life is not in black and white. Your life, who you are, is a patchwork stemming from your upbringing, your experiences, who you've met, the choices you've made. What you study is also a piece of this patchwork, but it's not the whole thing. And the more you go into your adult life, the more you end up painting that mosaic to your image and to your tastes. This week, you'll be hearing from David Freiheit about getting a law degree and becoming a litigator and about how he's been able to marry his knowledge of law to his love of photography and film. Here's one of the pearls of wisdom he shared during our conversation. Be diligent, make friends with the students, and something I also forgot is make friends with the professors. Stay tuned as we discuss this and much more on a new episode of Papa PhD. Welcome to Papa PhD with David Mendez, the podcast where we explore careers and life after grad school with guests who have walked the road less traveled and have unique stories to tell about how they made their place in a world of constantly evolving rules. Get ready to go off the beaten path and hop on for an exciting new episode of Papa PhD. Before we dive into today's episode, I just want to let you know that I've prepared for you a resource sheet to help you take a snapshot of your current situation and start defining your profile for the job market in your areas of interest. You can download it by visiting papaphd.com and following the instructions in the website footer. Welcome to the show. So today I'm interviewing uh, Viva Fry, David Freiheit. He's known as Viva Fry uh, on, on YouTube and on the internet. And um, we're going to talk about uh, his studies, about uh, what his path was. Uh, he has a very, very interesting pivot that he did recently. And um, it's, I think it's going to be a very cool interview. So welcome to the show, David. Thank you very much. And I've done a few podcasts, but I've never done a podcast Viva Voce live with the interviewer in person. I've done them online. So this is a new, uh, a new sort of experience for a podcast. Me too. It's my first live interview and I've actually posted on, on Twitter today because it's, it's pretty exciting. Yeah, it's very, it's very cool. So I introduced you very, very shortly, but uh, yeah, I'd like you to talk a little bit about yourself and let the listeners know who you are, where you come from and what you do today. So Montreal litigator turned YouTuber. I'm still not a litigator, but I'm still a lawyer. Uh, I do some legal work just to actually make ends meet because we'll get into this, but the YouTube side of things is not economically sustainable on its own. Um, but I did make a decision about three years ago to phase out litigation entirely for my practice because I could no longer do it. Uh, I, I couldn't stand doing it after it was 10 plus years of litigation where I think I had gotten the feel for it and what it was and the fact that uh, I didn't want to do that as the rest of my life. Uh, about me, Montreal, youngest of five kids, born and raised. Uh, I lived in Paris for one year when I studied philosophy at La Sorbonne, lived in Quebec City for three to four years while I studied law, but uh, youngest of five kids in the family, four of the five kids are lawyers. Wow. <laughs> my father's a lawyer, my sister-in-law's a lawyer, two of my sister-in-law's are lawyers, okay. my brother-in-law's parents are lawyers in Florida. We have a family of lawyers. It's like a family tradition. <laughs> it's a, it, you know, it, wasn't, it started with my father, but it, it was never a sort of a, an imposed tradition. It just became the way we all went. I think probably because of the nature of our upbringing, have a, having a lawyer, full, I'd say a philosopher, philosophical father, mm -hmm. um, critical thinker type thing. Everybody says, okay, when you, when, you, when you study philosophy, when you think critically, when you think analytically, there's a few things that are going to be good for professions and law is like right up, right up on the list there. Um, 
so so that's it. We were you know studied uh, elementary school, high school. Won't get too much into the high school, but I did do a video on my high school because I did bounce around from three high schools in five years. Wow. Um, my major sort of life transition was into Sejep where I stopped being. Uh, what a troublemaker! A troublemaker, <laughs> and sort of started started actually succeeding in studies and and settling down in terms of behavior. Sejep was Dawson for anybody who knows what that is, and I did creative arts, and I've always been into creative arts, which is what I've sort of come back to full circle. And I've always been into video making. Like when we were kids, wow. we would make videos with VHS and the the shoulder held camcorders. Creative videos in in Sejep, I did uh, film courses and and made short films, so I've always loved film. But, you know, you can't make a life with creative arts degree and certainly not, despite being on the dean's list of Dawson for creative arts, it's not, it's not itself a career. And I had not ever envisioned that being a life career. So like my siblings went and studied philosophy, I went to McGill to study philosophy. Okay. Um, I, I liked the moral philosophy. I liked the philosophy of law. I liked, I liked the, the conceptual side of philosophy. Um, and from there, obviously, you don't become a philosopher unless you want to go and do a PhD and become a professor. Mm. So the natural course then was to go get a law degree. And getting a law degree, not necessarily just to be compelled to become a lawyer, but even if you don't ever practice law, having a law degree is like the greatest, among the greatest sort of uh, foundations of an education that you can have because you don't need to become a lawyer. You can go do anything. You can do business and be very successful at it if you yeah. know how to think within the legal framework. You can go into politics. You can go and, you know, whatever. So that was the foundation for my future career, but I ended up going into law. Um, started working at a place called Borden Ladner Gervais, which at the time was Canada's largest law firm in terms of numbers of lawyers. Okay. But it's always been top 10 in terms of you know, reputation, big firms, national firms. Uh, and I worked there as a student, stagiaire, which is an intern, mm -hmm. and young lawyer. Uh, it was over the course of five years. And, um, and it was an interesting experience, but I was never, um, it, it always left something wanting, or I always felt that there has to be more to, to the practice than this, not uh, out of anything of, of the law firm in particular. It's the same at all big law firms, just there has to be more to life and more to the law than this. Um, and the lifestyle itself was sort of difficultly sustainable when we had a kid before kids, you know, I could work seven days a week, 10 hours a day, wouldn't make much of a difference. We had our first kid. I took um, two months off for parental. And then when I went back to work, you know, I was going back to work five, six, seven days a week, eight, nine, 10 hours a day. And at one point over an extended period of time, I, I was leaving the house when my kid was asleep, coming back when she was asleep. And I was miserable. I was not seeing her during her waking life. And there was no uh, end to this horizon. So the, at, at one point I was not happy and I was visibly not happy. My wife said, you, you know, you, something has to change or something's never going to change. And this, I remember the Friday afternoon, mid-April, I just, I said, that's it. I went to my boss and I said, I can't do this anymore. I, I, I like and respect everybody here and they liked and respected me. I said, I just, this, I can't do this for another five years. Mm -hmm. So I, I left and I, you know, I tidied up my stuff over the next two weeks to a month thinking that I was going to go into commercial photography because I have okay. always been into photography. I've always had, you know, I was, I was into photography before digital photography. I said I would never make the transition to digital, but I got a, my dad gave me his Nikon D1 at the time and then I got into it. So I said, I'm, I, law thing doesn't seem like it's for me. I'm going to go and apply for commercial photography back at Dawson, like sort of yeah. full circle. Before I could get 
rejected because I was put on the waiting list. <laughs> and I know why they rejected me because I, I don't think they thought that I was actually going to commit to the full-time program because I was a lawyer with a kid and mm. it wasn't going to be sustainable for me. Um, before I could even get rejected off the waiting list, legal work started coming in faster than I could handle it. And so I started working, but I was working out of, out of the basement. In fact, I was working out of the basement. We had not even moved out on our own yet. We were living with my parents in the basement and I was working out of their basement and I said, I can't do this. So I went and got an office. So this was legal work that was coming straight to not through the office. Everyone's like, hey, I heard you left. Um, now I can probably afford you. <laughs> you know, can you help me out with this? That's so interesting. Literally from one day to the next. It was like literally I was out of the office the Saturday. Someone says, I have a file. Can you help me? I said, sure. I mean, geez, they were billing me out at, it doesn't really matter, but they were billing me out at whatever at the big law firm because overhead is a totally different factor in terms of establishing hourly rates. I go to my own. I have no overhead. I have no expenses. I have no secretary. D didn't even have a computer at that time. So, you know, it, it was a no-brainer. It's like, oh, what do I need to charge in order to even make a living? Um, and the work kept on coming in. So then at one point I said, I can't work out of my parents' basements. I can't have people delivering documents here. This was actually within two weeks. So wow. I got to go find an office just to, just to have an official address because also nobody really takes it seriously when you are operating a legal practice out of a residential address. It sort of has a connotation to it. And also nobody likes getting served documents for their clients at their home. So I got an office just a couple blocks away on St. Catherine, tiny office, $700 a month, and was able to work professionally, meet clients and do all this thing. And over the summer, uh, I had work and I had, I had more work than I needed and I had more work than I could know what to do with. And so I started doing that. And then at one point I had so much work, I said, I need to get a paralegal. And I found a paralegal, Daphne, she knows who she is if she's listening to this, best paralegal, best person that I had ever met in building my practice on my own because mm. she had been a paralegal at another, you know, sizable law firm, knew more about procedure, back court documents, backings, all these things to some extent than I did. She was, you know, it was, it was, it was meant to be that we met at that time, build up the solo practice into me, her, another lawyer at one point. And then we got to the point where I needed to get a bigger office. My father was leaving Steichman Elliott because of their partnership rules. He wanted to continue practicing. So we said, let's all get together and go to old Montreal and get a nice office by the courthouse and, and do this, which we did. So I started on my own in 2010 and we did this until we're still doing it. I'll be on a lesser degree. Uh, but until 2016, 17, when was that? I made my decision to wind up the litigation side and move on to something that I think would make me happier mm -hmm. uh, in retrospect, if I'm looking at my life at the end of it. And so then what happens? I, I say we have to wind up the litigation side. It takes a full year to wind up the files, find lawyers to substitute, uh, settle the files that need to be settled. It was itself uh, an amazing and intense process. And at the time and shortly afterwards, I, I told myself if I knew what was going to be involved in winding it down, I'm not sure that I would have ever started it up. But it was just because it's, it's a year of work where not only are you not really billing in the files because you can't bill a client to wind up their file and find a substitute, um, we were paying the lawyers that we had. I was paying, we had a couple of lawyers working for us who were actually helping me organize the files. Mm -hmm. So it was not only not revenue, revenue generating, but it was an expense. Uh, and it was, it, was, it, was, it was fun, it was stressful, but boom, wound it up, closed up the last litigation file. I had to keep a few because for anybody who doesn't know, litigation is like a multi-year process. And some files where we have a trial waiting, you can't just get out of the file and say, sorry, client, go find another lawyer who's gonna incur all of the expenses of a learning curve to get up to speed in the file. So you have to keep some files that you can't responsibly get out of. 
so we did that and then I wound up the last one, got everything under control, went to California for a two and a half week road trip, which was the longest vacation I had taken in my life at that time. And that's when I sort of had started doing the daily vlogging. Okay, you started on the road trip. I started on the road trip, but I had been doing YouTube for a while before that. So the, and the way those two called them professions for a lack of a better word for YouTube, it's not really, it's more of a passion mm -hmm. than a profession. Since 2014, I had been posting videos on YouTube when I got a GoPro and discovered, you know, just it's fun to make videos again. Yeah, except you don't, you don't, you don't have a, a 10 pound VHS camcorder on your shoulder. You have a two and a half ounce camera that yeah. captures images better than anything you could have ever imagined in your childhood. So I started making these videos and then I started licensing these videos after the first video that I ever had go viral went viral and I learned about video licensing agencies. I learned about YouTube monetization, subscribers. But I always say like, if I knew then what I knew now, things would probably be very different because the learning curve was at first non-existent because I was not paying attention to it. And then it was a sharp learning curve when I realized what I had to do to turn a channel into a channel as an asset and not just, uh, you know, as a database for storing videos. So the first video, if you had never seen it, but I think everyone in Montreal probably has seen it at this point, was a squirrel stealing a GoPro, carrying it up a tree, minute and a half video, Posted, I, I think I shot it on uh, November, some, November 2014. Mm -hmm. Sunday afternoon, I go and say, holy cows, this was kind of a cool thing the way this turned out. I upload it to YouTube and five days later, it has 5 million views. A at the time, this is 2014, that was like real, that was viral in the viral sense it's of YouTube. <laughs> um, you know, two or three days later, I start getting these, what appear to be spam emails from vi video licensing agencies mm -hmm. saying, hey, we saw your video, we'd like to license it. You'd retain all the intellectual property and copyright, but we would have non-exclusive licensing rights. I had no idea what they were. I assumed they were all spam, mm -hmm. but I ended up getting in touch with one of them. We discussed exactly what happens and I sort of understood then, okay, they, they go fish it around with third parties to license it. Mm -hmm. um, they claim a certain portion of your AdSense revenue from the views on YouTube, but you are now tapping into a, a, a sort of a network of third parties that you would never have access to in terms of licensing the video. And I, I, I sort of, that's where I started learning about video licensing and it was incredible because through this video licensing agency, it, it got licensed to National Geographic, okay. Mother Jones, news networks across the world. And, and they, they send you emails and say, we'd like to use your video. And, but when you're, when you're a solo person, you have no idea what you're how doing, to how to deal with it, how to negotiate these deals. When you have an agency, you say, okay, good, it's being licensed by them. I have no say in this. So you sort of wash your hands of negotiating. You wash your hands of being the greedy person asking for money for, for your, for your mm -hmm. property. And the video licensing agency licenses it out. And it was amazing. I remember the, the, the day I got the check for the AdSense revenue. Mm -hmm. It was like, it was 2,000 bucks wow. for this video. That, that, that's not even including the, the, the where it got licensed uh, to other parties. Yeah, because I think I've seen it on Japanese. Uh... Oh yeah, it was on. It was on a Japanese television show. It was on. It was on someone who reads Spanish news. Called me up and said, "You're on the front page of what is the equivalent of CNN in Spain." It's crazy. It was. It was. A, it was a totally new experience. Um, but and, and then I, you know, I got the check for the for the for the views on YouTube. I was like, "Holy cows!" I went out and bought a drone. And then with that drone, I kept on making content, which itself, you know, some videos went viral. They got hundreds of thousands of views. Um, others got licensed out by tech sites, all sorts of things. And then I, that's when I sort of just began exploring and experiencing YouTube for what its potential was for viral videos. 
and then over time, you know, you realize you can't make a business off hitting the lottery and you can't build a channel off hitting the lottery, even though you have a bunch of people who come for random stuff. And as the progression would occur, I noticed that every time I put out a video based on law, mm-hmm. it didn't get a million views, but it got thousands and tens of thousands and sometimes, you know, hundreds of thousands of views. Consistently. Consistently. And so I would put out a, a law-based video, maybe one every 10 videos. Mm-hmm. And I just noticed like some of the they would always get relatively consistent engagement compared to the other ones, which would either be 300 views or, you know, 50,000, depending on if they went quasi-viral. Hit and miss. Hit and miss. I mean, it's what it is. And, and the idea that I even have a channel that has multi, uh, that at the time had no specific brand or no specific direction that had multiple videos that got over a million views on YouTube is something of an anomaly. Like it's, I like to pretend that I sort of had the ideas, but I think the world was different back then. YouTube was different back then. Certainly where I was operating in the realm of doing funny things with drones, GoPros, it was, it was a young time for that. And there were not many videos out there. So the, the market had been non-exploited and non-exhausted. So some of the videos and ideas that I had made a mark, made a mark, like the, the tooth pulling with a drone, waxing my legs with a drone, grilling a steak with a drone, the, the drone videos, you know, I, I, I exhausted the capacity for the drone. But then, you know, I realized like, it doesn't matter. I would make a cooking video and one where I cooked an ostrich egg got 6 million views. The other one where we hard boiled the ostrich egg got close to a million views. But the ones where I cooked squid, you know, got a thousand views if, if we're lucky. And, you know, I couldn't turn my channel into a cooking channel. It was, I, it, it, unless it was like a humorous, I, you know, dad ruins everything type thing, but whatever. So I, I wasn't looking for direction for the channel, but it sort of came there because I noticed I just put out law videos talk about my practice, talk about my experience, mm-hmm. apply it to regular life. And, and, and I noticed those videos got consistent engagement. Mm-hmm. And it was something that I, I liked. I, I grew to like doing it. At first, I made the joke like these, these law-based videos are boring, but they sort of gotten interesting because it's stuff that I look into anyhow. There's no point not making a video on it because I'm going to read up on it myself. Yeah. Why not help people uh, understand who, who, who want to understand? And I discovered this market, so to speak, of people who are looking to understand what's going on in the world in terms that they can understand. And that's the niche that I sort of now started focusing on. Yeah, and we'll get back to my questions, but I feel that one of the things with those videos is people are thankful that someone is, is bringing things that you think are you know, way over your head down to their level and explaining nitty gritty of like interrogations. And I think that's, that's the trick. That's, that's what gets people coming back because this guy is teaching me stuff. That society tells me I shouldn't be understanding. Yeah, th- that's what I think it's really, is really cool about that. Well, and that's, the and that's, that's what I like about it also, because first of all, I, th- I think everyone has got, the internet has allowed everybody to realize, um, not that they're getting lied to by the media, I don't want to sound like that, but at the very least, everything they're getting from the media, whatever side it's on, already has spin, it already has interpretation, it, there may be... Uh, I don't want to say misrepresentations by omission, but there are certainly, you can't get all of the information in. Mm-hmm. And so the media with whatever agenda they have, depending on whatever, whatever site or, or paper it is, mm-hmm. has a spin, they have an agenda and everybody knows that they're getting that spin, but they don't exactly know where they're getting it from. They don't exactly know what information they're not getting. They don't exactly know what, I call them irrelevant or superfluous details they are getting that allow whoever to come to whatever conclusion they yeah. want. But right. they know they're not getting an explanation. They're getting a summary they're being told what to think as opposed to being yeah, told how to think. It's never impartial. It's, there's always an agenda. There, there's an agenda. There's an agenda if it's, you know, and I'm, you can't see that I'm doing the quotes, but if it, there's an agenda if it's news, mainstream media. There's commentary. There's no shortage of commentary, but even with the commentary stuff on either side, some is better than others, mm-hmm. but typically, you know, it does involve 
your commentary based on things and facts that are going to support that position and sort of setting aside the things that are not. And I try to do my best, even when I do have a personal position, to explain both sides of what's going on and just let people come to their own conclusions, which I did with the first video that I noticed that went quasi-viral was me you know, explaining and breaking down what was going on in that Alex Jones deposition. And that's sort of the one I think that got me into trouble with YouTube because I did not appreciate at the time that you, there are certain topics that um, the platform doesn't necessarily even want people talking about. Mm. Uh, that is not necessarily a deterrent for me, but I just found that, I found that so interesting because the media was reporting on a three and a quarter hour deposition by showing a, a literally a five second soundbite. Mm. And I said, when I saw that, there has to be more to this. I'd like to see what the deposition looked like. And in watching it, I, I realized no one's going to watch it. Even people who are going to be inclined to watch it are not really going to understand or appreciate necessarily what they're watching. The ones who are going to understand what they're watching are certainly going to cherry pick from whatever side they want to promote whatever, you know, the, their position. So I just went through it and I said, look, this is what I would have done. This is what I would have not done as the attorney. This is what a good question should look like. This is what a bad question allows or bad as in an improper question or a ill phrased question. This is what it allows the witness to do on an answer. People loved that video in terms of the insight. And it was April 2019. And since then, you know, that's where I sort of focused the channel. Yeah. And today it's, it's, there's a lot of vlogs happening. V-L-A-W-G-S. That's right. <laughs> that, there's a lot of vlogs happening because the content is, you know, generates itself in terms of subject matter. Mm -hmm. The real question is only, do I think that I can responsibly put together a video on it without exceeding, without purporting to exceed my own understanding of the subject and also keeping myself sane it's i can't deal with everything and you know there's there are so many subjects out there that i'd love to talk about some of them would require just fundamentally more opinion than others which i'm not averse to doing but i, I sort of i try to focus more on these are the these are as objective a, a, a lay of the land facts as you can get no spin but i have my opinion but you know now come to your own opinion type mm -hmm. thing yeah that's very cool so it seems that you know you're pretty lucky in a certain way that you end up, like you said, full circle before it, but it's it's just like a double whammy because now not only you're, you're doing content creation, you're doing video, but you're using all your law knowledge and, and, and people are, you know, are liking it and are interacting and engaging. That's, that's, that's pretty no, cool. Absolutely. And, and I think of it, I, mean, I had at one point thought of it like real estate, like the legal practice is real estate. I've spent all this time and money building this building and I'm not even living in it. I'm not even renting out the spaces because I don't like the building anymore. And I say, well, there's a way to revamp that building and sort of take mm -hmm. take the law side which is the foundation and then put in the creativity which can be the the stores for lack of a better analogy but it was it was silly of me to th really because i was acting more out of emotion and and fatigue incidentally than anything else but it was it was not the smart the best thing to say okay well now I've, i have 12 plus years of law practice experience four years of law school four years of philosophy now i'm just going to give it up and go make videos about cooking it's wasting yeah. value that I that I could probably bring to to people, which I seem to be, which seems to be the case, and yeah. people seem to like the videos. Um, I'm not sure that the platform itself likes non-authoritative uh, <laughs> news or or people, you know, purporting to report on things that they want to leave to the expertise of mainstream media. But uh, that's uh, a different uh, that's a different battle and one that I. Yeah may or may not be able to to win but at least i can be stubborn and stick around for as long well, as possible your, your videos get demonetized and then you get them reviewed they get re-monetized you know and eventually things may adjust i i don't know how 
how political or how I don't know how YouTube uh, <laughs> actually works within you know behind their their clo closed doors there, but. I, I, you must be you mustn't be the only one you know dealing with this well that's why I, and you every you tend to take people tend to take things that happen to them personally and not objectively if if i can say it like that and so i, I would say like i take it personally and then i try to say oh it's because of my content etc but then you know i could go and i look at other channels mm -hmm. who are growing whether or not they would grow faster but they're still growing so i can't just blame everything on an algorithm i can't just blame everything on politics it might be that my style is not one which um, is not like a, a forest fire type spreading style. Whereas, you know, the the um, uh, elaborate sort of highly politicized commentary tends to spread faster, but but I th that gets that has to get tiring at a certain point yeah. for the people and for the people making it, for the people listening. There's, there's, but commentary, I'm trying to think of the word, uh, I don't want to say inflammatory commentary, but, you know, that, 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 that highly partisan sort of shocking and delivery commentary there's a lot of it and it may tend to it may spread faster but i'm trying to go for the slow burn of i could i could do you know very edgy commentary as well i don't want to even when i do commentary i try to be as respectful as humanly possible to people who don't necessarily share that opinion no no and I, that's that that's why i like i like your content too because exactly of that i i really i'm not a consumer of the the more inflammatory like you're saying uh, content it's to me, it's even it's a deterrent. Once I see, I see something like that, I, I close it and it's I mean, it I, interest I, me. I, I listen to it incidentally on both sides because you, you need to know what people are thinking. And I, I don't get shocked. I don't get offended by it myself. I just know that people do. And my purpose, my purpose in life is not to shock or offend in delivery. People might get shocked and offended just based on call the, the facts or based on the assessment. Um, and, you know, I'm thinking of some videos where uh, let's just say the, the, the analysis of uh, the Trudeau SNC Lavalin scandal. Mm -hmm. People got upset at the content, and it's usually on partisan lines. But you know, I, I could have gone with the commentary side. I'll just go with the actual. You know, this could have been anybody. It could have been any other politician. It's not a partisan thing. If people get upset, it might be because of their partisan beliefs or their partisan hatred of the other side, and now they're faced with the prospect of having to vote for someone who's involved in a scandal, even though they don't necessarily like him but hate the other side even more it's like so people can still get offended by the by the content but they won't get offended by the delivery or or what they what some people consider like a disrespect for uh, opposing opinions it's like it's like your it's like in in portugal where i come from it's like if you're if you if you follow this soccer team anything that's from the other soccer team you kind of hate the partisan thing is not it's not unique to politics it's 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 you know, it's it's human tribalism. It just yeah. materializes itself either in politics, you know, football teams, television shows, rock bands. Uh, it, it it materializes itself in different in different ways. But it's a human it's a human condition. But the, all I say is like, I, I wouldn't be good at it. I, I could be good because I can, you know I can think of snide remarks and insulting ways to edgy ways to present an opinion and insult other people. Yeah, I, I it's it's a I could do it. It just it wouldn't make me feel good to do it. Some people don't mind it, and I do appreciate that it is a method of delivery that sometimes is required in order to reach people. You have to be a little shocking. You have to be a little edgy. Mm -hmm. um, there's people who are going to do it. It's it's never been my thing because I actually just don't like making other people feel bad. Yeah. Um, yeah. So even though I probably could have been good at it, <laughs> I, I don't think I'll, I won't go there. Even if I express my opinion, it's this is what the other people think. This is what I think. Um, well, um, probably as a litigator, you you had to 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 not you know not not in an inflammatory way, but you had to shock uh, either people from you know uh, I'd say um, uh, 
witnesses from the other for the from the other part, not in a bad way or demeaning way, but you know, be able to jog or to uh, jostle. Now, uh, in, jostle. Terms, in terms of exact depositions, yes. And that's why in depositions, well, there's ways to get the information out of, out of your witness. And sometimes it requires jostling. Sometimes it requires uh, instigation. Sometimes it requires like uh, not intimidation, but rather irritation. irritation. But other times it requires uh, flattery. Other times it requires friendliness. Mm-hmm. But, you know, speaking of, of this, of my framework of, of YouTube and the way I present videos, it, it is much like the litigation side where when you present something to a judge, you, know, you could call the advers- your adversary a liar and you can, you can mock them and you can attack them personally, but it doesn't work with a judge. And, they, and in fact, it oftentimes turns them off. So, you know, you could go for that highly partisan, uh, oh, my, you know, they're a liar, they're hiding information from you, et cetera, et cetera, which is sort of the... the uh, um, which is sort of the way people who are opinionated and, and, and political commentary go. Mm-hmm. And that works, that works in terms of getting engagement of people because like, there's been studies that show that people engage more when they get angry on YouTube yeah. uh, and Twitter and Facebook. <laughs> but in front of a judge, it, it won't win you the case and it'll actually compromise your position because the judge can say, look, call the other lawyer whatever you want. You need to prove your case. Yeah. Um, and so that, that's sort of, on the one hand, I think that's sort of guided how I ended up doing these videos where I, I oftentimes, even when I present both sides, present the other side as authentically as possible uh, in order to present the rebuttal. Um, but, uh, no, but I think it's, 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 on the one hand, sort of shaped the way I present the videos, but on the other hand, sort of shaped the way I can also deal with criticism and deal with the opposing opinions is yeah. don't take it personally. Um, e- even if they call you names, it's, it's not going to change anything. You got you to gotta argue with the facts above and beyond the names. That's it, if it doesn't stick to you. In the second part of our conversation, David and I talked about his experience going through law school and how he's been able to bring together his love of law and of video content creation as Viva Fry on YouTube. So we we touched back, uh, we we touched law again and now now in in these last few seconds. And uh, actually, I think I want to dial our conversation back a little bit more to now thinking of the people listening out there who are thinking of maybe studying law. Uh, A couple of uh, weeks ago, I interviewed someone uh, who, who did a, a master's in the same institute where, where I did my PhD here uh, at the MNI. And now she's a lawyer in, in, uh, in Toronto in a, in a media company, an, in, an in-house lawyer. So uh, you studied philosophy and then you became a lawyer. Uh, can you maybe talk about how that process was? Uh, or or you know, do you have any advice for people thinking, oh, I might like studying law. I, I love Viva Fry and his vlogs. I want to be able to, to talk like that someday. <laughs> well, so the, the, the funny thing is I don't want to discourage anyone from going into law because there are people who I'm sure love the practice. There are people who I'm sure love litigation. They love everything about it. And my, my, you know, if anyone who's listened to multiple podcasts that I've been on, I always say this. I wish I could have loved it because mm-hmm. just and it's without conceit or arrogance. I, I was good at it because I could anticipate arguments. I was good at it because I could anticipate responses and react quickly to them. I could have, I, it would have been great to love it because I, you know, could have, could have, would have been partner, whatever, how, how that progresses. Um, so I don't want to deter people from doing it because people do like the practice. A lot of people don't and they end up going in-house or they go uh, start a business or they, they leave the practice because schedule is not what they like. It's not, it's not easily reconcilable with, with, with family. It's just a matter of fact, despite what every firm says. So this is not to deter anybody from doing it. People do love the practice and people do find domains that bring them deep satisfaction, like pro bono work, um, human rights work. Yeah. The, practi- the, 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 the degree itself is immensely useful whether you ever practice a day in your life. The philosophy, philosophy leading into law was just that 
in English Canada, they accept 95% of students who have undergrad degrees. They accept that it's a very, very small minority that law schools accept without an undergrad. So it was just a question of what undergrad do I do that will contribute to my understanding of the law. Philosophy, I've always been interested in it. It was, you know, I, I used to read these books uh, in high school and, and Sejep. Um, I had always been interested in philosophy. It's, it was a no-brainer. Mm -hmm. You could do political science as well, but political science really is sort of philosophy applied to politics to some extent. Um, I had an interest in history and I did a minor in history at the same time. And okay. I think, you know, I, I would be better off studying history now because I could place it into context and understand its importance. But philosophy was just what I picked. But an undergrad degree just to give you some form of training, how to succeed in university, how to interact with students, how to interact with professors. It's, I think it's essential before going into law school also because you go study law, you should have some life experience above and beyond the black and white letter of the law. Mm -hmm. And what I found from the practice also is that the, the lawyers who became lawyers without having done an undergrad went straight into law are practicing lawyers by the time they're sometimes 21, 22. Okay. They, they, on the one hand, have a very, uh, they don't really have a full grasp of, of life as a whole. And so they treat law files um, as pure questions of law, sort of not appreciating the human elements to them. Okay. And other times they're dealing with like, you know, business law questions where they may know the law, but they have no business experience to know what impact that would have on a business. So it's one thing to understand the legal consequences, but not to not be able to appreciate their actual business consequences. Uh, is a problem. You can give someone legally correct advice, but that's going to be bad business advice. So the undergrad, I think, is essential. In law school itself, you know, it's it's good. It teaches you about the law. It teaches you about the history of the law. It, it, it teaches you how to think critically. It teaches you in theory, and if you're lucky, to know when you don't know something, to know where you need to go look to get the answers. Mm -hmm. um, but to succeed in law school itself, sort of like every other, it's sort of like every other uh, I would imagine every other program is you need to learn how to study. You need to learn what, what information is required of you. You need to learn where your opinion is not relevant um, versus where the information that the teach the professor is after is relevant. And that was sort of the, the, the tough learning curve for me because philosophy, you could sort of get away with giving a lot more of your opinion. What you think is a lot more relevant yeah. than it is in law. In law, when you start a sentence with, I think, stop there. Yeah. Nobody cares what you think. <laughs> tell me what the judges say and tell me what the law says. Uh, so it's, it's, it's good training. It's good training because it beats you down into some sort of um, humility mm -hmm. to know that uh, to some extent nobody cares what you think. Just know the law and know how to apply it and know how to gather it, facts and how to apply the law to the facts and the facts of the law. Excellent. And so you had family that, had, that, were, that were lawyers that had gone through law school. Was that something that surprised you that you like loved? Like, oh, wow, this is actually awesome. I didn't expect to you know, to love this or that so much or the opposite. Oh my gosh, this, this was hard. This was the first thing that I found hard was that nobody cared about my opinion. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's something that like lawyer, law students don't really appreciate and they learn the hard way also because you're studying law. You think you are, you know, uh, an elite of society an intellectual elite. You have some important position because you're studying law and, mm -hmm. you know, lawyers, law students and medical students tend to have this phenomenon and I, and I noticed it because I, I, know I had lots of friends in university as well. You notice it. Like when you're studying something that you think is the backbone of society, you tend to place a lot of value in yourself and your ability to study it or the fact that you are studying it. So there is this sort of arrogance that a lot of law students get early on okay. when studying law because you go to parties, oh, what do you study? Oh, uh, 
say comparative religion. It's like, oh, I'm studying law, and, and you know, there's this there's this arrogance that goes along with studying something. It's five thousand years old, and it's you know the cornerstone of every free and democratic society. I'm studying law. It's comparative comparative literature and comparative religion. It's, you know, whatever. Um, but people get over that quickly because at least they should. That was the one thing I found was nobody cared about my opinion. It, you know, I was nothing as a law student. I hadn't done anything yet. So studying something important doesn't, doesn't increase the importance of the person doing the studying. Mm-hmm. Um, the thing that I found surprising that I loved, which I was not, never expecting, was the extracurricular life, which was I got to law school in Quebec City. If you can imagine, it's, there's a thousand students in the faculty, and I think there might have been a dozen Anglophones. Okay. So I'm an, I'm an Anglo coming from Montreal, coming from Westbound, which is even more Anglo than... The rest of the rest of Montreal and going to Quebec City, it was. I mean, I was in a new world. It's ninety nine percent French, and it's and it's great. That's why I went there. Incidentally, is I, I didn't want to go to U of M and study law in Montreal in French, but speak English on a you know daily basis. So I got quickly um, heavily involved in student life. And I was uh, in the first year law. It doesn't really matter. If everyone's going to know what these mean. But I was the student representative of the first year law students. Okay. And then I, you know, then you get involved and it's sort of a click. It's a, it's a good click and it's a big click, but you get involved with people who are involved in student life. In the second year, I, I became the editor-in-chief of the Law Journal, which was phenomenal. I mean, I'm, I'm an Anglophone. I was writing articles in French, having them proofread. And, and, but we were putting together, uh, you know, Le Verdict, which is the verdict, mm-hmm. Law Journal. And it was, it was fun. We, 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 it was controversial at times. Mm-hmm. It was political, but it got people talking, got the students involved in, in submitting their own articles. And it got me to meet a whole bunch of people that I would have otherwise never met. And it got me out of my, you know, small apartment in yeah. Quebec City because you need to get out, especially when you're living alone in a different city. Cool. Were you doing interviews at all or was it more... Uh... The Le Verdict? No, the, the people did interviews, but they submitted articles. We had jur- journalists who were students who submitted regularly. Okay. But it was mostly a question of getting articles, getting content, putting it together, printing it uh, every two months, I think. It was, it was fun. It was great. And then in third year law school, I, I ran for president of the Law Student Association and was elected student, you know, president of the LSA. And it was, it was also phenomenal because you learn how to run committees. You learn how to organize events. Um, it was just, it was overall a fantastic experience to get involved in student life, which I never would have thought because at McGill, when I studied and I lived at home, I was, I was more of a, of a homebody. I'd go to school, I'd go home, I'd go biking, and I would keep to myself. But when you're in a, a different city with, at first, no friends, mm-hmm. if you do that, you're going to quickly become very depressed yeah. and, and, and not enjoy life much. Yeah, I think you're touching on a very important point is get involved in, in, uh, in clubs in, or, or create a club if, if it doesn't exist, uh, you know, with like-minded people. And well, in your case specifically, really dealing with, with stuff related to your, to your uh, study subject, that, was, that must have been awesome. It was a great experience. And you, you meet these people who you may not ever work with later, but you run into them in the practice. One of the guys who was on one of the committees, he was in, he was in the Law Student Association as well. I, I go to court and he's now one of the special clerks. And I'm, I'm pleading a, a, not, a, not a lawsuit because of the jurisdiction, but I'm pleading something in front of uh, you know, someone who, who I went to school with. Not that we have any meaningful connection it's just it's good to know you know hey how's life incidentally the other lawyer also we we all knew each other it's a small world but um it, it, you, you make these connections that you keep for life you run into them later on in the practice they may be people you end up working with they may be people you end up working against yeah. who may be people who end up offering you a job in the future so it's just it's a great way to establish a network and you never know when it's going to come back to support you in the future that's great advice and i think one of the things 
once either you go into grad school or, or in this case, law school, um, it's maybe slightly different, a research project. It can get uh, very lonely at times, but definitely meet other people, uh, organize clubs, uh, and, and, uh, and yeah, enlarge your, your network and, uh, and make sure you're not just digging your hole into, into, uh, into just looking at one thing because depression can uh, it's uh, and not not to say that i ever suffered from depression uh, in in quebec city but you know there are some days where you're just like what are you doing you're sitting at home eating canned food and watching tv and there's a there's a world out there that you that, that you know exists but that it's, it's sometimes tough to get into mm-hmm. so it, the more you get into it the more it happens and then you have events that you can decide to go to to get out or if you're tired you know just chill out mm-hmm. but you know b- between you know, the irony is good grades always work and good grades are always better, but the difference between 90% and totally uninvolved in student life and 80% and highly involved in student life, I can tell you from experience when applying for jobs, uh, they appreciate people who are involved in student life also because it is further evidence of the ability to socialize and interact with other people, which is, which is, you know, among the most essential elements of being a good lawyer. And in your case, working in the law journal, they can read you or they, what you edited and they can actually, you know, have that type of info. Well, they, they, they can read it today if anyone knows where to find it. I, I, I occasionally go back with the, um, with the advent of cancel culture. I go back to see what sort of things I wrote in university. But I, the, the oh, funny yeah. thing is I, I was always nervous. I, not, I'm nervous, I say. I was always operating on the basis that everything I ever do would go public in any event. So even before this time. So I, awesome. I, I, I read my articles. <laughs> there, there are things that I still believe. I'm, I'm more nuanced on certain, on certain positions, like death penalty, for example. But there are certain things I go back and read. I'm, never, I'm not embarrassed or ashamed at all. And I still largely adhere to most of those, mm-hmm. those things. But it is funny just reading the way mm-hmm. you drafted I mean, right now it's almost 20, not 20, it's, oh my God, it's almost 20 years ago, but 15 years ago, it's, uh, it's fun. Um, But I go back and read it every now and again, just, you know, just in case I want to run for prime minister, is any one of these articles (laughs) going to disqualify me in, in the eyes of the public? And now what about transitioning to becoming, becoming a natural lawyer and people who are now studying, finishing, you know, how was that? What was, what were key moments? What were key strategies? So it's it's not to say that I had it. It's not that I had to say I had it easy. I just didn't have any massive roadblocks. Like I I got I got a job coming out of law school. I got the, in fact you get the job before you even go to bar school. So okay. it's called the course au stage, which is like the race to the internships, okay. or what some people call the rat race to the internships. <laughs> and it's you do it in sec after second year. So you basically apply for a job that they promise you before you even graduate law school, before you even do bar school. So, you know, I had that secured and it was sort of, you know, it being a, being a bilingual uh, Anglophone is, is an asset to most places because you have a lot of, there's a lot of Francophones and there's a lot of bilingual Francophones, but like there's not as many bilingual Anglophones in the world of law, even though we're in the province of Quebec, mm-hmm. it's, it's an asset for dealing with out of province, out of country clients. So I, you know, I was able to get a, a job right away. So I didn't have difficulty. I didn't have to go do the uh, internship at a, at a, at a solo firm or even, you know, even more difficult start on your own entirely and baptism by fire type, oh type training. But the, um, see the most amazing thing that I discovered as a, as a lawyer was now I'm, I'm sworn in 2007 and the internet is sort of hitting its, its peak, so to speak. You end up, I was amazed at, at the point where you end up having clients who 
are not uninformed and are not uneducated. Mm-hmm. Now, it may be a problem also because they may think they're more educated than they are because you can get information on, on the internet and not exactly know how to process it, sort of like self-diagnosing. So exactly. people, people go to doctors and say, I know what I have. <laughs> they say, I know what I have, but, um, and then the doctor's like, yeah, okay, but you know, don't, you have to appreciate the, the, the things that I spent 10 years studying in order to diagnose yourself. But the, by and large, you are dealing with a much more educated client base um, and with the internet, text, emails, you're dealing with a client base that also expects and demands immediate responsiveness. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. some people are better off at you know cutting that off and saying you know between eight at night and eight in the morning I won't answer. Other people with different types of personalities and myself included, um, you can quickly spiral into a, into a place where you create an expectation that you're you're going to respond to your clients even if it's three in the morning. Yeah. Because your BlackBerry is on and whatever. You're showing your age, but yes, your iPhone. <laughs> I'm, I'm joking, but no. But basically, yeah, you know, you you can create uh, responsiveness as an asset, and and for people with certain types of personalities, you feel compelled to be immediately responsive, and that is good to a point, and then it becomes a problem after a point, and and you know, it became a problem with me because I I not always able to turn off the switch. I'd say I'm very rarely able to turn off the switch. And then it becomes sort of all-encompassing in, in anything. I mean, I, I talk about it being all-encompassing in law, but it's sort of all-encompassing in whatever I do. And that's just, you know, who I am and how I'm wired. But that is, you know, clients know more than they ever did and are expecting responsiveness like they, like they never did. Mm. And uh, again, thinking of, of the listeners out there, uh, through all of this, you know, we're talking about uh, work-life balance, um, but this is already in, the, in your professional life. Uh, what skills, you know, you, you, social skills, clearly you, you've mentioned them, uh, being like, implicating yourself in, in the university uh, uh, bodies or, um, or, you know, student uh, organizations that, that might exist. Very important, definitely. Also doing sports, etc. That's, you know... That's, Ex- exercise that's is number one. Uh, but now in terms of getting ready to hit to hit the the because the, after there's bar exam there's you have your intern you have your articling bar exam i it's so i'm so going so crazy now i can't remember which one comes first i know you have to do your internship before you pass the bar because if you don't pass the bar you can't start working i think that's okay. the order yeah so then you got you got to do your internship approved then you got to pass the bar so the question i was going to ask is if you're in law school, what skills it? What's because a lot of who you are as a lawyer is who you are as a person. Uh, you know, you said you had this interest in philosophy from before, but what skills were very important for you that you learned in law school that then served you a lot in in your work as a lawyer? It's 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 the one skill, and I don't think it's unique to law, and it's not even so much a skill. It is a question of appreciating what you don't know and being aware of what you don't know before thinking you know something. Because I, I think it is, in any field, it's sort of like, it's the, not the, uh, the sign of ignorance, but it's, it's where people get into trouble, is thinking they know something without even looking into, without even appreciating that there are things that they don't know that might impact their position. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, you know, I imagine it's the same thing in any domain, but in law, it's, I've looked at this, this, and this, is there anything else that I haven't looked at that I might think I, I may need to know. Like if you don't know a regulation exists, you're going to have a tough time answering a question if you're answering it based on an, an uh, inadequate or insufficient knowledge of the applicable or existing legislation. And, and that's, that's the toughest thing because oftentimes in law, you get asked a question 
you may not even know that there's a specific regulation dealing with it. And so Google helps everything. You know, the internet helps everything. You don't have to go to libraries and, and delve into the footnotes and, mm. and pull up these, these statutes. But you need to know um, whether or not a, a province has franchise, specific franchise legislation. And if you don't know that and you think, well, I'm just going to apply general contract law, you're going to get in trouble. And that's, that's the, the skill, that's the fear, and that's the, that is the, always the uh, sword of Democles hanging over every lawyer's head when they give an opinion. Need to make sure that I've covered all my bases and that I've addressed everything that exists. There's no loopholes. There's no loopholes. There's no, I haven't missed, you know, the most obvious. One of the classic examples that I had from my own practice was a, a, a lawyer asked me to, uh, for a procedural question. And I go look and then I go back to these, I find cases from, they were literally 80 year old cases. They addressed wow. the, the very question. And then I sort of argued by analogy and I said, okay, good. And then he goes to court, comes back with a piece of paper. It's a two page judgment from a year ago. It, the exact same answer, the exact, the exact same answer. But he's like, you know, it looks better when we have the 2017 or it was 2007 <laughs> decision as opposed to the 1907 decision. And so, and I said, yeah, ooh, I didn't even think to go to that database first before going into what I knew were my, the existing databases that I had always gone to. So it reflex becomes um, a liability sometimes when you, when you get too lazy or you don't know what the, what, what else is out there. Excellent. And uh, now this brings us to, to today, you know, uh, the last couple of years, you've embraced content creation as your main occupation, uh, and you present you present yourself as a Montreal litigator turn, turned YouTuber, and publishing what you call vlogs, V L A W G S, every day. We've talked about this a little bit. Close to every day. I'm trying to I'm trying to stop every day because I have to control myself. But yeah, <laughs> often. <laughs> uh, but how did this transition came about? You now you've decided that this is something you you want to pursue. You've you've already mentioned that. The, the economic sustainability of the project is something you're still working out. It brought me back to the expression um, that the person who loves what they do never works a day in their life. Mm -hmm. And when mm -hmm. I discovered like, holy cows, you know, I'm not making, I'm not making su sustainable income yet, but when you make money doing what you love, it doesn't feel like you're working. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I, I love content creation. I love the creativity behind it. I like the subject matter behind it. And it sort of is the best of both worlds for me to the extent that it's to the extent that it's sustainable, applying the law, but without the emotional and, uh, you know, spiritual impact that the practice itself had. Yeah. And I say this in a couple of videos, you know, sitting back and being the spectator, analyzing a deposition mm -hmm. is one thing. Being the lawyer who's conducting the deposition. And if you screw it up, you screwed up your, your opportunity or... You know, there's a, there's a there's a different level of stress that goes along with that, and not just the stress for the deposition, but a life stress mm -hmm. that uh, call me weak or call me sensitive or whatever. I mean, I'm not sensitive to the to the qualification. I just you know, I, one I one I can appreciate, one I can do, and the other one I no longer wanted to do. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, it's it's one thing to analyze the deposition, but when you're in the deposition the night before, you don't sleep because yeah. you're going over everything in your head. The day after, <laughs> you don't sleep because you're going over. Oh, I should have said this. I should have gone there. And in, in files in general, you know, there's, there's deadlines, there's, there's a, an element to the, to the practice mm. that is above and beyond the, the law that is, that is itself tremendously stressful. And, um, but then there's the, the actual practice itself, which you know, I could have, if I had loved it more than, if I had loved it as much as I loved doing this, mm -hmm. I could have continued doing it. And then, you know, the, 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 the other stuff is the stuff you have to deal with to continue doing what you love. Mm. But I, you know, I, I prefer to be sort of, more removed from it because it's more emotionally it's less emotionally draining for me yeah yeah no and it's totally legitimate and 
uh, like you were saying, once you decide to have a family and to be involved, you know, you want to you want to be whole and you want to be positive and you want to have you know good energy to to share with them. I guess. Right? I asked my daughter one day. I said, "What do you think lawyers do?" And she says, "I think they scream on the phone all day." <laughs> and I mean, to some extent, you know, screaming for a kid is not necessarily screaming for an adult or screaming for a lawyer. But yeah, look, you spend all day every day trying to protect your you know protect your client from the opposing party mm-hmm. trying to protect yourself from opposing counsel mm-hmm. trying to protect yourself from your client and trying to protect your client from themselves where you know i i took to heart i took very personally when things didn't go the way i wanted them to when when they didn't go the way i thought they should and you know they say like a doctor has to be dissociated from the person on yeah. on on whom they are operating and the best doctors dissociate themselves I'm not sure I believe it, but I do understand that there's a, you know, for the people who can't separate their clients' problems from themselves, mm. it becomes a, it, it, you know, it becomes a life question. It's a burden. Yeah. It's a burden. And, and I always thought that maybe, you know, dissociating myself too much would mean that I would be too disinterested as an attorney and not, not do a service to them. But the flip side is taking your client's losses when you've done everything you could mm-hmm. as your own losses has, carries its own toll. And that's the aspect that I identify with more, I'd say. But um, we're getting to the end of the interview, but there, there's something that I, that I like to ask about. And because the, the arc of the story you told is, is there's, a, you know, there's a lot happening. You know, uh, you're, you're doing videos in high school, you're studying philosophy, then you go to, to study law. Uh, it's, you have a great time in law school, uh, from, from what I understood. I would say I had a lot of fun you in had, law You had school, a good yeah. time. It went well, you got a job, and then we, we're here today. Uh, and the question where I'm going at, and it's, it's a question that I like to to delve into is, did you along all this path have mentors that like that guided you? Because there's there's some of the transitions are quite well. It's interesting, yeah. In, in retrospect, I can appreciate who are I would consider retroactive mentors mm-hmm. in okay. law, in law school. <laughs> the former president of the Law Student Association, the one who you know handed down the reign to me, mm-hmm. was a friend. He was from Montreal as well. And he encouraged me to do a lot of this stuff. And he was one year up and had, had the insight. And in retrospect, you know, I appreciate that. That was the good advice that helped me in law school. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a lawyer, I had a number of mentors, but one in particular who he knows who he is, who was mm-hmm. among the best mentors I ever had, who tried to get me to, you know, it's the client's problems are not your problems. You're the lawyer. You do your best. You act responsibly. If it doesn't go the way you think it should have. You, you know, you guarantee a process, but not a result. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He also happens to be an absolute workaholic who, you know, it, it, I, and I genuinely think he liked it, which is why I was always sort of jealous. Like, it's almost like he would have rather been at work than been anywhere else. Mm-hmm. I was, you know, maybe it's a flaw, but I would have always rather been doing something fun in quotes than, than working as a lawyer. Um, but, you know, he, and he gave, me the, he gave me the good advice. He gave me the good discipline, you know, and he was also which is the most important thing that I've ever learned from the practice of law is he took responsibility for any mistake that occurred, even wow. if it was my fault, um, which I always found very, uh, I don't want to say nice. It's not the proper word, but you know, I found that I found it to be inspiring because all too often uh, lawyers whose only thermometer or metric of success is how right they are. Mm-hmm. Don't like assuming responsibility for mistakes. Mm-hmm. Um, especially when they are objectively the mistakes of the underling who didn't ask for a specific date, whatever. <laughs> this lawyer, it was never your, well, first of all, it was never your fault. It was our fault. And he was at the head of the hour. It was, and I took that to my own practice when I left. And, mm-hmm. you know, it was, it was at the end of the day, I, you could never blame anything on anybody else when 
when you're the, the sort of the responsible attorney. But mm-hmm. it's also in terms of creating cohesion among a team yeah. where people don't have to fear about being thrown under a bus. Um, to save your reputation, people end up taking the bullet for each other even when they don't have to, which is much different than, you know, the using someone as a shield. Yeah, that's really, really awesome. And so that, that was, that was the, as a mentor. And then, you know, and then I don't want to ignore my father and all this because it's you sort of take for granted uh, that that which has always been there my dad's advice was always the best which you know the best as well is just be honest just be forthright and just be responsible and and the rest you can't control excellent and um i think you've you've kind of covered what the mentors uh, gave you but well your father you know how you came across your father how did you come across was there did you Look for people to help you at different spots. No, no, no. I, I, I'm not, not that I'm, I'm, not that I'm stubborn, but I might be accused of being <laughs> stubborn. I generally do my own thing. So it came and up I, organically. It like... came up organically, but I don't even think I appreciated it at the time. It's, it is only in retrospect that I appreciated. I mean, the mentors that you have as a young lawyer, when you're the young lawyer at a big law firm, they are, you know, labeled mentors. They tell you what to do, and so it's sort of like an imposed mentorship. But I've had multiple ones. There's just a couple who have given me advice that has stuck with me, uh, you know, after the official mentorship mentorship had ended. Mm-hmm. But I was sort of stubborn in general in life in any <laughs> case and like to do things my own way. But, you know, it, it is in retrospect where I appreciate that I had followed the advice or at least followed the inspiration of people who had done things before me mm-hmm. uh, in order to not necessarily avoid certain mistakes, but at the very least do other things right. Um, getting involved in student life at law school was the most important thing because it was in, in fact in comparison to my four years of philosophy it was the exact opposite wow. circumstance living in the city having the comfort of your own home to go back to certainly doesn't give you the incentive or the impetus to go out and meet yeah. people and do things yeah. living alone in a city where you i was dating my now wife at the time okay. and i remember the day that she left me for my first day of law school. She was crying as she got into the cab. Because, and I remember I called her back after. I was like, what were you crying for? And she's like, I saw you all alone standing at the corner of the street in a city where you knew nobody, had no family, and I'm driving off back to everything I know in Montreal. And it was that, it was that uh, not loneliness, but it was like being dropped on, you know, somewhere else that forces you to find ways to survive in, in a sustainable manner. Excellent. That's, that's excellent. And there's a lot of students out there that are visiting students from abroad and listen to to viva and listen to david because it's this is really really great advice uh any clubs any things that that might interest you get in there and you'll meet interesting people who may even you you may cross them in your professional life and, later and on. i should preface that also or qualify that by saying not to treat it like it is a transaction a future transaction <laughs> it, it, it has to be you know don't look at it like maybe this guy's going to give me a job in five years but go out and meet people yeah get involved find purpose and find meaning and find something to keep you distracted from uh the idle hands that make devils work <laughs> <laughs> definitely and what about the content creation video part? Where are you totally self-taught, or do you also have people who that that I'm that I'm totally self-taught because I got uh, Final Cut Pro ten. Uh, I only got that two years ago. I, I was I, for the first four or five years I was using uh, Movie Maker, but uh, I say self-taught. I, I was just at the beginning just doing it in the most basic ways possible in terms mm-hmm. of putting videos together. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, I'm not that I think my editing is highly technical it's more maybe creative than technical mm-hmm. but i figured out how to use final cut pro on my own and through youtube tutorials okay. but th- that's the other thing it's like there's nothing on this earth that people can't learn on their own right now today yeah you're right and it's it's a it's a it's a wonderful world it's frustrating sometimes because you can't you don't have a physical person to ask a specific question to but there's nothing that you can't learn from, uh, well, from the you, internet from youtube one of the things that i use the most when i when there's something i need to know to learn or a machine i need to operate that i don't know 
How to? Every, everything's like, on YouTube. The funny one of the one of the more viral videos that I've ever had was how to remove a security tag from your clothing, and it was it was a it was a funny family moment where I was you know my mother in law got uh, shirts for the kids from TJ Maxx in the states, and we're opening them up in Montreal, okay. and so nobody's going back to have those stupid security tags removed. And I take two forks, show hey this is how you do it, pry them apart, pop it out. It was a non ink uh, security tag. Okay. That video now, like, it's like a million and a half views because people around Christmas time all have the same problem. They go to YouTube. How do I remove a security tag? And they get the uh, they get that video recommended. Well, well, this get, this gets me to my last question, uh, which is uh, which is a kind of a wrap up and and trying to give some advice to share, to, to impart some some advice uh, to the listeners. And you know, thinking of yourself, you know, back in the day when you were uh, either before going to Quebec or or in Quebec. Uh, what what key uh, or basic strategies or principles would you advise stu students out there um, follow starting today to put in place a realistic and attainable transition project towards a fulfilling professional life, be it in law or in, in any other domain that they that may interest them? Well, it, it's tough. Pick pick something that you like. Um, don't give up on it too early because sometimes people say, I don't, I've done one semester in whatever program and I don't like it, so now I have to find something else. Life moves quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, don't stick to something for 10 years if, if you know you hate it after five, and I'm thinking of myself <laughs> in litigation. But as far as you know, the study goes, just uh, be diligent, make friends with the students, and something I also forgot is make friends with the professors. And not friends as in like buddy, buddy, just let the professors know that you're interested in what you're studying, what you're, what's going on. Um, because when a professor knows that you're serious and that you exist and that you're responsible and you're taking things seriously, mm -hmm. um, on the one hand, it's, it's, it's good to know the professors personally, but on the other hand, if it comes to asking for a revision of an exam and the, and the professor knows that you've been working hard all semester versus he's never seen you except when it comes time to complain about yeah. an exam, it changes things a little bit. Mm -hmm. That's the very strategic way uh, to look at it. But um, knowing your professors and getting to know them, having getting to know what they want mm -hmm. is also amazing. But uh, as far as the transition, get out there, meet people, yeah. get to know the city, mm -hmm. and just don't get stuck in the habit of going to school, going home, and uh, you know, not not uh, not meeting people and not getting out there. That's excellent advice uh, for, for everyone listening out there. Sun and exercise also, if I can oh, add. Those are key for sure, for sure. Uh, and and uh, especially the winter's coming, so, you know, get as much sun as you can. <laughs> winter's always tough. Snowshoes and Mountain Royal for anyone who's new to Montreal. Beautiful, beautiful hiking in there. David, this was awesome. I was Thank super happy to, to have you here. Uh, it was a great, a great experience having you live as my first uh, live uh, interviewee. <laughs> Mine too. It, it is. I've seen videos of people doing live podcasts, and it, it you know, I, I've seen what it looks like. It's, it's different to answer questions. Yeah, in person. It's awesome. I, I really lo loved it. I think uh, your story is inspiring uh, in many senses, and I also think that there were a lot of great insights and a lot of uh, information that's going to help people out there that are either thinking of starting law or that are already like finishing law school and and thinking what's coming next so thanks a lot awesome thank you and uh that's it i'll, I'll see you on the webs yeah right, absolutely <laughs> know, know your vlog <laughs> if you like this episode you will probably also like episode 10 with tamara luke who turned a master's degree in neuroscience into a successful career as an in-house lawyer in an entertainment production company check it out at papaphd.com forward slash 10 and remember to subscribe and share on your favorite podcatcher 
and to follow on Facebook and on Twitter. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Papa PhD podcast. Head over to papaphd.com for show notes and for more food for thought about non-academic postgrad careers. I'll always be happy to share inspiring stories, new ideas, and useful resources here on the podcast. So make sure you subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts to always keep up with the discussion and to hear from our latest guests. Music